Welcome to the Bookcase. We're so glad you're here. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson. Today we have Delia Efron on the show, a writer I have been a fan of for a long, long time. Her new book, though, is quite a departure from her earlier work. It's in it's a very personal story about her finding love for the second time after her first husband's death, but also about her harrowing battle with leukemia. And it's interesting because when I was reading it, I thought, wow, this is so deeply personal. This is so, uh, th- everything she writes about is so visceral, so deep inside that I was thinking, why on earth would you want to share that with the world, uh, even though it's beautifully written? And then I started thinking about the fact that, you know, writers can't not write. It's something we've talked about in the show before. It's in their DNA. And she talks about it being the greatest story she's ever been given to tell. It's how she makes sense of the world. And so I guess this book, in some ways, is a letting go of that amazing story, releasing it out there so that other people can learn from it and heal with it. You know, as as viewers of Good Morning America know, Robin Roberts went through uh, just a, a such a tough time dealing with the same disease that Delia dealt with. And when I talked to Robin, I said, can you read this book? And she said, no, I just can't. I can't. But as somebody, personally me, who went through some forms of cancer, I've, I found it cathartic. And and I think it was cathartic for Delia to write it. You you made an interesting point right at the beginning, Kate, that that it's a love story. And she finds a second round of love in her life that sustains her through hell. She says, I went through hell. I wanted to die. My bone marrow, she needed a bone marrow transplant, as Robin did. Um, she, she said, my marrow was getting better, but I was so sick that I wanted to check out. And when you get to that point, um, she takes us through it as readers and, and you will, as Katie said, it's visceral. You will feel it. And she expresses it well. Um, although she had to go back and find a lot of contemporaneous emails and letters that were written because she doesn't remember parts of the battle that she went through. Left on 10th is the name of the book. Left on 10th refers to how you get to where she lives. You take a left on 10th and and you're there um, in New York City. Um, It's on the bestseller list and it deserves to be. It should be. Uh, It is a book that, uh, well, it's it's worth reading. And and I, I found it tough to read, but very rewarding. It's interesting because in some ways, the book made me feel as a reader, although I thank God I've never had to go through what she went through, but the book stopped me in my tracks because I sort of felt like I was following along Delia Efron's career. She wrote The Lion is In, which I loved, and Syracuse, and a bunch of funny books that, that were a, a wry perspective on the world, on families, on everything. And then there is this book by Delia Efron that is so different from anything that she's ever written. And it, it, it almost hits you smack right in the middle of her canon. And in some ways, I, I feel like that's how she felt. You know, her life forever is going to be before this book and after this book. And I felt that same way as a reader, if that makes any sense at all. Left on 10th is the book. And, and I would ask people just to stick around for the rapid fire. Because one of the questions that we've stolen from Stephen Colbert is, in five words, describe what you'd like the rest of your life to be. What would be in her mind, having come out of this battle with leukemia, when perfectly possible she could have died and came close to it and wanted to? But what she says then about what she'd like the rest of her life to be, really interesting. But first, our discussion, our conversation with Delia Efron. Welcome, Delia Efron, to The Bookcase. We are so uh, excited to have you here. Um, Left on 10th, your new book. You've you've written nonfiction before, of course, and much of it humorously, although you've written eloquently in other nonfiction work about Nora's death. But this is very different. Uh, Left on 10th is a it's a wrenching personal journey. And at times it's it's difficult to read. So what I wonder is, what made you want to turn this very inward journey 
public? What made you want to publish it? It's just about the greatest story <laughs> that I've ever been given to tell. I have everything. It had every important emotional thing that could happen to you. I mean, I lost my husband of 32 years. Then my internet crashed, which is quite horrible, but not on the level, obviously, of that loss. But I, you know, it, it turns out that the disconnecting your husband's phone is a very, very big rite of passage when you when you lose your mate. And it went completely south on me. And I ended up in this huge battle with Verizon. And I was I was hysterical. I mean, I, I went on for weeks. And um, finally, I do what I do. I wrote a funny piece about it that was about losing Jerry and fighting with Verizon. And, and then five months later, you know, I hear from Peter. I get this email from this semi-stranger. We'd had three dates 54 years before, um, fixed up by my sister, Nora. And that's only some of the strange confluences that we shared. Um, and we start to email and, and you know, because I'm thinking, oh, I've just fallen into my own romantic comedy. Um, as I wrote, you've got mail. And then I, and then four months later, I got diagnosed with uh, leukemia and I was given such low odds of survival. And then I did. So everything you could ever want emotionally about love and loss and illness and all the things that all of us experience at some point in our lives, you really do, were jammed into a four-year period of my life. And when I recovered, I had a stem cell transplant. And when I recovered, I really thought I would never write again. I, and, and when a writer says that, I mean, writing is a calling. It's not something you just do. It's it's what keeps you sane and centered. And well, that is what it was for me. And um, I, you know, I, I when I got out of the hospital after a hundred days there, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand by myself. I I had to relearn so much physical stuff. I had I had physical therapy five days a week for many months. And I just thought, well, I'm done. You know, I'm not going to write again. And I was, I was, Peter and I got, Peter and I got married in the hospital. So I had this new life. And, and then, you know, one day about two years in, when I, I realized I was actually going to be here, my writer's heart started beating again. And I thought, I just handed you an absolutely amazing story. And, and I began to write it. I want to talk about how did you do it? Because there, there are interviews and there's times where it feels like you're writing from your diary. And it, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of techniques that feel like it go, that they go into this book. One of the great things about writing a book is that almost anything can go into it. You know, I mean, you can put it in an email, you can put it in an article, you can put, you know, you can shape it as interestingly or compellingly as you need to. And um, so what I did was I asked a friend to collect everything out of my computer that pertained to those years. Then I looked at all the email exchanges between me and Peter, which were absolutely extraordinary love, love story. So then there was that piece of it. And then the hospital... I did not understand totally what my medical, um, all the, I, I understood it well enough to understand. I had AML, which is a fierce leukemia, and I had to have chemotherapy. But I told my doctors very early on, don't tell me very much. I don't want to know my odds. I don't want to know how this thing works. I don't, you know, you're the same person you are when you're sick that you are when you're well. That's all I can say. And if, if, I, I noticed because I, I know from my sister, who is a journalist, Nora, she researched everything. She used words that I'm, I don't even know the meanings of, you know, in discussing her illness with me. But um, <laughs> I didn't want that. So I was at this point fairly ignorant. Plus, the hundred days I had when I had a bone marrow transplant were so completely traumatic that I didn't, like my friend Meredith said to me, well, you were in the ICU for six days. And I said, what? I mean, I swear to you, I have never seen an ICU in my conscious mind. 
So when I began to research the book, it was like a treasure hunt because I was well now. So it was almost like I could separate a little bit from that that sick person I was and discover all this amazing, all this stuff that was so interesting. It was I enjoyed, I actually enjoyed the research. I actually loved writing it. I think that it took the trauma and I was really traumatized from the chemo. It was some chemo you, you do not forget. It, it was really a difficult chemo, this one called melphalan. It's if melphalan, just to give you an idea, this is something they give you IV, which by the way, when I remembered it, I thought I drank it. And my doctor corrected that in the manuscript. I mean, that's how muddled your brain can be. But you have to ice your mouth for an hour before, during it, and an hour afterwards, or it will destroy your throat. Okay. I mean, that is scary. All right. And I kept having nightmares about it. So, you know, writing it, I, I, I think everyone who gets traumatized and everyone will, if there's anything you can do with it, if you can write it, knit it, dance it, cook it, anything, it will help you process. You say a couple of things that you say sort of matter of factly, which are not matter of fact. You said when I recovered, like that was sort of a given. It wasn't at all. You thought you were going to die. And that is a pretty profound thing. You also, you also say, I'm the same person when I'm sick as I was when I'm well, but you're not. You become your disease. It becomes, it takes over everything. And how you experience that is really what is so traumatic in this book. But I want to take you back to the beginning. My sister had myelodysplastic syndrome, a disease of the bone marrow. And you always knew that you had a predilection to that, that it could travel in the family, correct? Correct. I did because I had a count off in my uh, CBC, which is your complete blood count that you know your doctor does every year. And she was nervous. And so she sent me for a bone marrow biopsy. And it turned up that my marrow was not sick, but it wasn't absolutely normal. And that was when I found my doctor, Dr. Amazing Dr. Robos, uh, head of the leukemia unit at Well Cornell. And I was being checked by her. I guess by the time I ended up getting sick, I had been checked for 10 years, every six months. And every six months I would go in and she would say, this is the most boring blood I've seen today. And she would send me home. But I had that shadow over my life, um, all through Nora's illness and through Jerry's. So when you found out you had it, you had just found new love in your life. And now you find shortly after that, that you have got this potentially fatal disease. First of all, how did that affect your relationship with the new love, Peter? And, and what mentally did you go through at that point, knowing that your sister had died from this and yet you had it? Well, um, Peter and I, when you fall in love when you're 72 years old, one of the first conversations you have is, you know, whether you've had anything, you know, that, the other person needs to know about. And I was very, I mean, it was in some ways it was easier to fall in love at 72 because I wasn't trying to figure out who I am as a person. I wasn't trying to decide if I wanted children or a family or a, a white picket fence or where I wanted to live or what my career would be. I knew who I was and I was much clearer about that. And so falling in love was, was very, very thrilling. And but death is so close. You can reach out and touch it when you're 72. So I said to Peter, sort of jokingly, well, you know, I told him about this situation. I said, I've been checked for, for 10 years now. And I said, if I, oh, if I get sick, I give you total permission to leave me. And he just said, I would never do that. He just like shut it down. You have to know Peter to understand what Peter is. He's very clear. And that was the conversation we had. I did not think for one minute that Peter wasn't going to be with me on this journey. We weren't. I called him. I went. To, here's how I found out. I went to the hospital for a routine six-month checkup. 
and and the results can't come right in. You have your blood taken, you go to see to the doctor and the results come right up on this harsh screen. And uh, her PA was there and he was looking at the screen and I said, oh, I, I've never met him. I said, I come every six months and my blood checked. It's always been normal. And, you know, there's this pause and, and he says, it's normal. And, you know, it's these things, this, this knowledge that you're in a different world, it just comes in waves, you know? And I said, oh, and then Dr. Robos came in and sat down and she looked and I said, it's not normal. And, and somehow in the next, she said, well, this could correct. And then the rest of the results came in and they made no mistake about it. I had leukemia. And, and she said it right. You know, I have to do a bone marrow biopsy right now. And she left the room to, I mean, and I called up Peter and miraculously reached him between patients because he's a psychiatrist. So he has a 10 minute break. And I said, <laughs> I always wonder what goes on in those 10 minutes. Now I know. All right. I said, I have. <laughs> and, and he said, um, we'll get through this. He just said that he said, we'll get through this. You know, I'll, I'll come in tonight. You know, he was on a plane that night and Dr. Robos called on to confirm all the results from the bone marrow biopsy and said, you know, you have AML and, and um, I want you to check into the hospital on Tuesday. So the doctor is very positive, says there is this drug that might work, but also tells you this drug will only work for so long. Mm -hmm. And the only real cure is a bone marrow transplant. And mm -hmm. that is pretty traumatic to begin with. Second of all, you have to find a match that works. And your match wasn't perfect, but it was close enough they were willing to try it. But did they give you any sense when you decided to do the bone marrow transplant of just how traumatic and difficult and frightening it would be? Um, you know, I knew how awful it was because Nora had considered it. And Nora told me everything about it. She told me that the chemo was brutal. She told me that you could get it, you could get through a bone marrow, if you survived the bone marrow transplant, you could still get leukemia a week later or a month later or a year later, you know, it, and, and uh, so it could come right back. She she knew that it was a brutal thing to survive, and she had really filled me with tremendous fear. And I told when when what happened was when my I, when I went out of I went into remission for eight months, and then uh, I got it back again. And that's when Doctor Robo said, "This is there's only one thing you can do now, and that's it." And they told me I had four and a half months otherwise to live. And um, Dr. Robo said to me, don't be scared of the treatment, be scared of leukemia. And it was so smart because if you're someone who's as frightened as me and you just switch the fear, she terrified me about leukemia and, and, and shifted that. And I thought, oh, okay, right. But it wasn't just that. I mean, we were in love. We were, we were madly in love. There was no way I wasn't going to go out that way. I mean, I, I had to go out trying. And, you know, the first meeting I had with Dr. Bandazine, whom I absolutely adore, who's the bone marrow doctor, he said to me, you know, I have a 20% chance of survival. I was really scared, but I, I, I really thought, I just thought I had to try it. And also I want to tell you something else, you know, there are many kinds of there. I had a I had a very special bone marrow transplant. I had something called a haplocord transplant, which has been done for I don't know. I think it has been around for several years, many years. Like, but I don't think it was available to Nora. I'm not. I'm I'm not sure if they were doing it at Well Cornell then, or well, she wasn't there. She was at she was originally at Sloan. But the thing is. A haplocord transplant, if you don't have a match, it's a match with two, not with one. There's an adult donor who gives you their stem cells, and there's the cord blood from a baby that a mother has, has donated to the blood bank when she gives birth, which is a marvelous thing to do. 
every mother should do that when she has a baby. Now that baby stem cells are much more flexible than adult stem cells. And, and what happens is they give you them each a day apart. And for some science fiction reason, in my opinion, the adult donor <laughs> takes care of you of the baby stem cells migrate to your marrow and take root and start to multiply. And then the mother fades away. The adult donor, I think of her as a mother, the, the adult donor fades away and the baby stem cells take over. And since I did not have a match, this was a much more desirable thing for me than the other. So I was, I actually benefited from so many breakthroughs in, in leukemia cure uh, that were not even possible years before. But as you go through it, you mentioned immediately my taste for food went away. I couldn't eat. I was too weak to get to the bathroom. It all happened so quickly. I had a, an aversion to medicine. They kept giving me pills and I would throw them up. And, and you got to the point where you basically were delirious. I mean, it's at one point, things are working for you. But in terms of your recovery, it seems as if everything was working against you. It absolutely was. The, the amount of, you know, graft-host disease I had, my lungs filled with fluid. Um, but, you know, the pills, it's just a minute on those pills. I was taking like over 30 pills a day. Every single time a nurse came into the room, she just gave me something else. And I, I've never had an easy time with pills anyway, but the fact was I couldn't once I'd had all the chemo, I couldn't, I was, I couldn't keep anything down. And so, I mean, I went through so many different versions of how to take these pills. I tried to take them with yogurt. I tried to take them with applesauce. I tried to take them with seltzer. I tried to take them with God knows what else, ice cream, I think. And, um, you know, it was this, it was this incredible. I began to hate these pills. They were like demons. I mean, it was as dark it was as dark a time as I have ever imagined I could go through. And Peter, being a doctor, is reading all the reports and seeing that my bone marrow has taken. And the doctor is telling him that. Bandazine is saying, you know, this is working. It's just the idea that this is working and the patient is this sick is a very hard thing to even contemplate, especially if you're the patient. And I had lost... I mean, there I was, just a little rag of a person in bed, bald and skinny, and just, and I, I really did want to die. I was begging when it got very bad. I, I just was begging everyone to to please kill me. And then finally, Dr. Robos came in, and she said this brilliant thing to me. She said, "Give me forty-eight hours, and if I get somewhere, give me another forty-eight." So she actually acknowledged my the depth of my despair, but she gave me hope at the same time, which I really think I did want as well. She gave me real hope. And I and, and it was like in an endgame in one sentence. You know, I asked her about this because it was such a, a I don't remember very much from that time. Most of it's put together through asking, you know, interviewing all my friends and everything. But I remember that so clearly. And and she said to me this simple little thing, like it was, she said, small bites, okay, B-I-T-E-S. And I realized that what she meant was when a patient is in that level of distress, you don't say in six months, you know, you'll see, you'll be, you know, you give them a, you give them a small bite to understand that this can change and it can change quickly. And, and, um, but I mean, I think she's very brilliant in how she talks to patients. I really do. And I was very fortunate. You write, I understand suicide now, how people leave behind families, lovers, friends, children. All I want is blackness, an empty screen. I, I feel I'm frantic and sick and desperate to die. Um, can you remember what that feeling was like? You can write it and you can see it on a page, but can you remember what that actually felt like? I'm not a depressive. 
And so to be depressed wasn't something I had any familiarity with. And by the way, when you're in it anyway, it's, it, it overcomes you. It's, it's a powerful illness, depression. And what it does is it strips you of, 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 of anything except the need to escape. And that was the first time I understood what, why people do things like that. Why people, why you say, oh well, my God, he, he killed himself. He had two children, you know, and you think, you know, I understood what it was to be deeply depressed, that you feel there is no hope in this world and you need to get out. And it was a shocking thing to experience in retrospect at the time i think it was born of, of of a sense of relentlessness of of despair of of you know feeling so terrible and and feeling so sick but i um it everyone who was peter said to me you know you can't you're you can't be allowed to make a decision when you're that depressed period he said you can't you're not you don't have your adult mind that's what he said you do not have your adult mind there's a moment in the book that, that was fascinating to me when you say that they had proposed a, a procedure that they could do on you but that it might kill you and and you write, I, I am frantic and sick and desperate to die, but see how muddled I am? I want to die, but I don't want to die intubated. I'm saying no to something that can kill me. At the same time, I'm begging for them to kill me. Yeah, right. It, it's, it's a really extraordinary moment. Um, part of, you know, you, the, the, I guess the joy of writing this book was to uncover the incredible mess of my brain then you know that was so crazy and i'll tell you um one of the most extraordinary moments because um you know doctors who have specialties sometimes believe that you have to have a test or you have to have this that and the other and i, I didn't want that test and um the nurses the one of the nurses came in and she stood at the foot of my bed and she said the nurses agree with you and that was such an extraordinary moment, you know, that first of all, you you know, you're in this little room, you never see anybody else and you don't even understand there's a whole world out there of, of nurses who are talking about you and worried about you. And, you know, and, and I wasn't sure if she meant because it, it was a, it was ridiculous to do this test when I was this sick or if because, um, I was dying anyway. I didn't, I didn't actually know what it meant, but I knew she was on my side and I thought it was such a brave, fantastic thing that she did that. Your sister had the same thing. She died from it. You had it. You survived. You survived hell to come out the other end. Does it leave you with a sense of, of grace? Does it leave you with a sense of miracle? Does it leave you with survivor's guilt? It, I think it leaves me with all of those things. I mean, part of the, one of the most difficult things was that the doctors said to me, you are not your sister. And they meant under a microscope, your leukemia is different from her leukemia. You can have a different outcome. And I, of course, because I had just tried to do everything Nora did when I was a kid, except I couldn't keep up, of course, um, because she was going on the track so fast, but you know, our lives had been so mixed up together. Uh, from I'm their four daughters were all writers, but I was the second born, Norris the first born, and we and we ended up writing together. And so there, uh, I I was very. It felt like betrayal for me to believe uh, you are not your sister, and yet at the same time, it was empowering. It was. It was the uh, it was two things in opposition. I think. I would imagine uh, this book would be a difficult read because of that darkness that you go into uh, very eloquently. Um, that in some ways, if if I was going through a cancer journey, this might be difficult for me to read. How I mean, do you recommend it through folks going through your own journey, or do you say wait? wait until you're a little further along and then maybe, you know, how do you talk to cancer patients about this book that is so deeply personal wrenching? I, I think that everybody is different. 
And I don't think I could have read this book when I was in the middle of, first of all, let's just say that when you're in the middle of the treatment, you cannot read anything. Let's just be clear about that. If someone sends you magazine, you know, really silly magazines, you can look at the pictures in them. But believe me, reading was not on your list in that hospital. Okay, so reading is beyond you. But I would say that that varies completely because I have gotten the most amazing mail from people who have had cancer or are going through it or have friends going through it. And they say it is so helpful I have a friend who's, uh, I know someone whose husband's going through it, and she said it was just an incredible help for her to read the journey of the patient like that. And, and, and so, um, you know, you know, you don't, I didn't write this to, to, I wrote this to reveal the humanity of what I went through, really, just to reveal the human story of what life can deal you and, and how love and death end up in a, in a little match here. Um, and you know, the love letters are, are as popular as the, as the medical thing. I mean, some people do not have trouble as much trouble as you did reading the, the pain of it, but other people have written me and said, it's taken me a week to, to, to pull myself together to write you. So, I mean, it's what it is. You have to tell the story. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your fiction. Um, I, I've read Syracuse. I'm a huge fan of The Lion is In. And you talk in this book about essentially dreaming the book up. And so I'm sort of fascinated as to how after you dreamt this book, which is sort of fable-like, um, how you went about filling in the blanks and creating the entire arc of the story from this dream. I love this book so much. Uh, it's, 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 it's a very special, strange book. I, I, went, I went to sleep one night it was when I had, I knew that, Nora had a fatal diagnosis and Jerry did. So the two people I was closest to in my life were, I was going to, and I thought, how am I going to get through this? And I dreamed the premise for the line is in, I dreamed three women in a bar in North Carolina with a lion. And one of them was in a wedding dress. Okay. The young, two young women, one was in a wedding dress <laughs> and an older woman. And, I and and the place was very odd. It was a very odd space, kind of a crazy quilt of a place. And I woke up and I thought, and I woke up with the title, The Lion is in. And I thought, I just dreamed and I just dreamed my next book. So I sat down and I started to write it. And it was very different from other things I'd written. I had First of all, I had fun. Uh, writing Syracuse was very difficult, but writing The Lionism was a joy trip. And um, I, I'd i never been to North Carolina. I do not know why North Carolina ended up in that dream. And I didn't want to leave Jericho. <laughs> I didn't want to go there. So I'm sort of using the web a lot, and I picked a place that my friend Dina had been to and located it there. I, I mean, and I when I finished the book, all my writer girlfriends are saying, you cannot write a book about a place you've never been. So I said, oh, right, I can't write. She said, so you have to go there. So having written the book, I then went to double check everything that I put into it. I, I flew with my niece <laughs> to Raleigh and we drove to Rocky Mount and I had placed it just north of Rocky Mount. And <laughs> every morning I would, this book is what, really makes what this story is what makes me feel that what happened to me had ultimately later with leukemia had a magic to it, had a miracle quality to it because what happened in this trip was kind of a miracle. Anyway, I would put into the GPS, take back roads. That's all. And pick a random destination. And in, in my book, there's a, there's a tree that's important in the book and it, it looks like it's been struck by lightning and it's, it's mm -hmm. blown in a field and, and the, it has no foliage. And anyway, we're, we're driving down some country road 
and we make a turn and there in the field all alone is this tree. And <laughs> I, I you know, I tell the story, just telling it makes it feel less than it was. It was such an extraordinary moment of saying of, of all of life being something that you really don't understand, you know, that this could be true, that this could have happened. It doesn't make any sense scientifically. It doesn't make any sense. Any of it make any sense. And I screamed, you know, and Anna was driving and she stopped the car and she, she did not know what happened. And, and I, I, I said, I wrote, I wrote, you know, and we're, we, we were standing by the side of the road, staring at this tree. I, I mean, I took a picture of it and then a guy stops by and he says, uh, are you guys okay? And we say, oh yeah, we're just looking at the tree. And he said, oh yeah, it's my friend's tree. It's an oak tree. And it, that was what it was in my book, an oak tree. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Delia, we do a very quick series of questions with all of our principal interviewees some rapid-fire questions. And uh, Katie, let me start. Delia, the most influential book in your life? I suppose Charlotte's Web and Anne of Green Gables. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Oh. I think writing, actually. I, I can't read. I can't read when I'm writing. I sit there thinking, oh, my God, I can't do it and they can do a sunset and that's so depressing what's that is there a book on your bucket list i don't have a bucket list good grief <laughs> good for every you. day on 10th street is a day on list. do you read your reviews um you know what i broke my rule and i read them on this one i usually do not ever read reviews ever my parents raised us to believe that critics were you know that it was they really didn't like critics. It was like, it was a thing in my family, you know, and, 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 and one of my close friends is a critic and I love him, but it's, um, yeah. Um, I don't read review. I tried not to read reviews at all. I tried not to read reviews of my friends' works either. But then why'd you read them for this one? They were so nice. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> and finally, Delia, in five words, in five words, this is a question we stole from Stephen Colbert. In five words, describe what you'd like the rest of your life to be. Oh. Just the way it is. Wow. Good. Ooh. Oh. Oh, I like that one. So, Kate, what did you take away from what Delia had to say? Well, First, I want to come back to a point that we just touched on. I, I want to tell our listeners how much I love The Lion is In. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Um, it's funny. Um, it's interesting. And there is a fable. There's some great female characters. And there's a very fable-like feel to the book. 
which I think is really interesting given, I hate to use the word mysticism because it sounds so flicky, but there's a mysticism in her having dreamt this book at very troubled times in her life. I don't know what to say about it, but it reads like that. Um, and I highly recommend it. It's very, very good. The other thing I took from it, again, is that writers writers need to write. Writers need to write. When something happens to them, um, when something happens to somebody they love, it just it seems like they have to purge it. Um, and so I came away with this interview with a much greater understanding of why you would want to share something so challenging and deeply personal and wrenching. What about you? There's a relationship in what you talk about. First of all, the earlier book that you mentioned, um, it is funny. And, and I read it. Yes, it's a fable. And she tells us she dreamt the book. But I read it as an homage to her sister, Nora, uh, who, who probably is better known than Delia. But the interesting part, again, is that Nora died from the same disease that Delia survived. And as she says, the doctors told her that she had a match, a bone marrow match for her sister, but that it was too risky to do because it would it would endanger Delia. It's a genetic connection that can lead to acute myeloma leukemia, uh, myeloid leukemia, I should say. Um, and, and so Delia knew that it could be in her future and um, th that she had that relationship with her sister, that she wrote that book, which, as I say, I, I took as an homage to her sister. And then she writes a lot about her sister in Left on Tenth. Anyway, an interesting conversation, a difficult book to write and to read, but I think very worthwhile, very worthwhile. and compelling. I'll tell you, I fell, I, I fell in love with her doctors in this book. Um, I was so, the moment for me that really sticks with me in this book is when her doctor says, Delia, give me 48 hours. And if, if those 48 hours are worth it to you, give me another 48, give me another 48. The way the doctors talked to her, reasoned with her, how much they kept her in the loop, how much they kept her out of the loop. Um, Man, I'll tell you, if I get sick, those are the doctors I'm looking up. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's Dr. Robaz is, is her name, and and it, she was also Robin Roberts' doctor. Mm. And I've never met her. I don't know her. I wouldn't know if she walked in the room. But I feel I I love that doctor. She <laughs> saved Robin, and she saved Delia, and she's got to be awfully good at what she does. Anyway, Delia Efron, Left on Tenth is the book. Our independent bookstore today to feature is Changing Hands. They have two outlets, one in Phoenix, Arizona, the other in Tempe. Gail Shanks is one of the owners of Changing Hands, which has been around for a long time in Phoenix, gone through difficult times with the community pitched in, saved the bookstore, and it now, I hope, is flourishing. Gail Shanks of Changing Hands. Gail Shanks from the Changing Hands bookstore in Arizona, Phoenix, and Tempe, Arizona. Thanks for joining us. Uh, tell me about the bookstore. I I read on your website that you went through some tough times and the local community really bailed you out. Well, we started our store in 1974. So we've been around almost half a century now. And the book business has been on a roller coaster most of the time that I've been an uh, independent bookseller owner. So you know, it depends on the decade. It depends on what else is going on in the industry as to how our stores are doing. But the remarkable thing, which you might know, is that indie bookstores in this country have an incredibly loyal following in their communities if they work to build that relationship. And Changing Hands is no exception. We have grown our community around us. We started as just a tiny 500 square foot store in downtown Tempe near the university. And we grew and grew and grew until we had 
15,000 square feet and several moves later. And in 2014, we opened a second location in Phoenix because our Phoenix community was clamoring for us to have a store there. So we, we added another store and that store has a bar inside that has coffee and yummy pastries in the morning. And it kind of evolves into beer and wine and tasty treats in the afternoon. And that has again endeared us to that community who likes nothing better than to get a glass of wine at the bar and wander around and pick out books. So it's been extremely fun and very rewarding. And, you know, we're on generation three of, of our readers. So we've built readers of young children who have grown up and had their own children. And now those kids are coming into the store. So it's really been a pleasure for me to, to see that growth and to be part of, of this amazing book selling world. People are worried about how they get their kids' noses off of their electronic devices and into books. And yet, even though you see these kids glued to their phones, the fastest growth section that I've noted in bookstores is the young adult section. It is quite remarkable. And I think in some ways, it's part and parcel with the digital devices that they're carrying, because very often what we see is a teen in the section showing her friends the three books that she's going to buy at the store. And she's jabbering away about how excited she is about, you know, finding the latest in a series, or she's just discovered a new writer because one of my staff has said to her, you know, well, you read all the Lisa Mc McMahon books, but maybe you could start this new series. And so she's, you know, she, she's excited to share that with her friends. So that she shares over the digital um, phone, but there she is holding the physical books in her hand. And sometimes she's sitting <laughs> on a bench and there's like 12 books next to her and they're saying to each other, well, which one of these did you read? Which one should I read next? And then all of a sudden two or three other kids come in the store who are her friends and she's, essentially invited them in via her phone. And that's that's just a hoot. I like it. When we talk to folks around the country, I love to give them an opportunity to sort of tell us what books about their area and what writers from their area um, are exciting to them. Well, honestly, we've got a lot of writers in our community. Um, my favorite writer years ago was Barbara Kingsolver, who lived outside of Tucson, and she now lives in Virginia, I think, or West Virginia. But she does have a new book out, and she's coming back to the store this fall for an actual in-person event as opposed to one on Zoom, we hope. <laughs> and um, But, you know, she she was my favorite for <laughs> for all the years I've been reading. But now I think our regional favorites are really our young adult writers who come in and have really grown for us and with us, this group of, of young teens. And um, there's a guy named Bill Koningsberg that has come into the store for every single one of his books. Tom Levine comes in. As I said, um, Lisa McMahon is a local favorite. She's been an incredible supporter of our store for years. Every one of her new books gets launched in our store. Do you still get excited when you find a writer that perhaps hasn't been recognized before and think, oh, this is going to be fun? Oh my gosh. I, you know, I can't even tell you how excited I get about it. I, I just read an amazing memoir called Solito, which is by, um, Javier Zamora, and it's about a young nine-year-old who leaves Guatemala and travels across the Sonoran Desert with a group of strangers to try to reunite with his parents in the United States. And, you know, here he is, he's this young migrant, doesn't know how to tie his shoes, and he connects with these other people who are trying to cross the desert. And it was one of the most moving memoirs I have read in years. And if you ever want to understand what that 
migrant experiences, you just take a book like this written by a man who is a poet in the other half of his life and writes beautifully and is able to, you know, really convey that experience to the point where, you know, you're almost living, living in that desert with them out of water, cactus thorns in your face, you know, stumbling in the dark. And it's that kind of thing that really keeps me going. There was a woman named Ash Davidson who works at the Grand Canyon, which I feel is our region. And she wrote a book about logging in the Northwest. And if you had asked me, I am an anti-logger until I read Damnation Spring. And I suddenly understood the whole backside to why logging is what keeps people alive, families alive in their homes, able to put food on their tables. And you think about Redwoods in a whole different way after you read a novel like that. Well, you just sold me a book from Arizona. I'll tell you that right now. Like, I'm going to go out and buy Solito. And it is because of the recommendation. I mean, it speaks to what independent booksellers do. They get you excited. And so I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I can't wait to get off the phone so that I can go buy Solito and check it out. Um, that is that is why bookstores excite me so much. Gail Shanks, your enthusiasm for bookselling is infectious. And... Uh, May you have another 48 years with Changing Hands. Um, you can find it if people are listening and they're in the area. You can find them on Camelback Road in Phoenix, and you can find them on South McClintock Road in Tempe, if I've got the addresses right. Gail Shanks, thank you ever so much. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. It was great to meet and talk to both of you. And thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's going to be just wonderful. Oh, we're having so much fun. I bet you are. I bet you are. Gail Shanks from Changing Hands Bookstore in Arizona. We want you to stay tuned for Delia Efron's goodbye, her little coda at the end of the podcast. But first, the people who make this program possible. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpanobi, and Elizabeth Russo. To joy and to laughter. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.